Evening, Dan. Evening, Omar. How are you? I'm good, thanks. How are you doing? I think doing all right, thank you. Doing okay. Just, um, I think more or less just about over um, the the end of the the EPL and EFL window from last week, even though it was, um, yeah, a tough one um, in the end of uh, a few deadline bits, but feeling a bit more refreshed this week, I think. Yeah, a lot of a lot of people in football take holidays this week, don't they? Um, but you're not one of them. Not us. We're we're the hardcore Omar is what you're saying. <laughs> exactly. Work through the summer, work through September. Nothing, nothing till December now. I know. Well, it's it fe- yeah. It fe- it feels now like the uh, the start of the run till um, yeah start of the run at least until um, Christmas time. But you know, the weather's still good in the UK. Um, feels like in a good mood. Everyone's still outside. So. Looking forward to it. Yeah, exactly. Completely agree. Um, so we were going to um, do a little bit of an appraisal, I think, in a few different ways on um, summer transfer window. Obviously, there is still some uh, uh, windows that are open and, well, some say controversially so, or otherwise that we can um, maybe discuss either this time or, or another time. But there was a really good 21st um, group piece out that you um, you did today just on some summer window observations i can obviously talk through some some trends and things that that i've seen as well but um as always really looking forward to hearing your thoughts on how how it panned out and um and how things were looking from your side yeah absolutely so yeah maybe i can get into some of those um some of the things that stood out um it's a good point actually on on the windows being different obviously the, the main one is is saudi but i think they've even pulled their window forward or the closure of their window forward kind of cognizant of the fact that a lot of people aren't happy and I, and I think um on the surface it does seem a bit odd that windows close at different times but um that could be due to all kind of manner of reasons and I remember a few years ago the Premier League uh, clubs uh agreed to close their window before the season started um which they've now kind of Backtracked on. I think it was partly COVID, and also partly they were finding it was quite disruptive that player sales could still happen um, post closing of the window. Um, but it is interesting, actually, in the context of um, you know we we often have a very UK Premier League centric focus on when we chat. But one of the big uh, drivers of activity is actually how teams progress in in European qualifiers, uh, and obviously that just wrapped up. I think last week uh, with the draws were done last week as well. So you get a lot of teams that don't know if they're going to be in European group stages uh, and then we'll find out with about a week left in the window if that whether they will be and that obviously has a huge influence on players that might buy or sell uh, you know the need to bring in funds or the need to bring in reinforcements so that's partly why you get these these differences in um, or partly why I guess the European window continues to close after the season starts uh, but then obviously there's, there's differences with um, Saudi and uh, maybe maybe let's start with with Saudi I mean I think we'll do a whole uh, pod on Saudi at some point and, and the the role that the Pro League has, not just on the market, but more more broadly in, in global football. Um, we've So we've basically analysed all transactions involving big five league clubs in the, um, in the window um, just closed. And Saudi Pro League purchases uh, accounted for 15 of the 100 best players to move, which... Might not sound like a lot, fifteen percent, but it but actually is. It's kind of more than any other league except the Premier League, uh, which had twenty eight of the hundreds. The Premier League really dominant in the window, um, 
the, the obviously the kind of obvious takeaway is that a lot of those players were older. I mean, they were very good players, like Sir Benzema, Neymar, and, and so on. Uh, but if you looked at just the hundred best under twenty six players to move, um, they only had two of them. Um, so I think Vega was one. I, I forget who the other one was now. Um, so. Yeah, that, that kind of market share, I suppose, of, of top talent, um, Saudi Pro League definitely made a move. And it wasn't just your kind of ageing, over-the-hill players. You know, it was a significant chunk of the best players that were moving in, in the window just gone. Um, so it'll be interesting. I mean, obviously, the threat for European leagues is that the, those Saudi clubs do begin to target um, younger talent. Then um, that, that is a huge, huge risk for those clubs. And I wouldn't put it off, right? Um, I saw an interesting... I can't remember whether it was a comment um, or a post or something the other day around Chelsea's strategy, which maybe we can get onto. But Chelsea recruited young, um, and if if and, you know, uh, and some very good young talent. If the Saudi Pro League clubs want to start recruiting talent, they're going to have to start buying from Chelsea potentially in, in the coming uh, window, which isn't which isn't the worst strategy in the world. Uh, and just finally, on the on the kind of le- overall league perspective, I think the Premier League's activities continues to fascinate and dominate. Um, European football so if you looked at um, all the signings made by big five league clubs players bought by Premier League clubs were on average younger uh, better and they have a higher projected ceiling in our ratings than um, than the average player bought in any of the big five leagues and, and I think the younger point is really interesting because historically you'd have had German clubs or or French clubs buying younger than English clubs but this window you've got in Premier League clubs buying younger than any other league in the big five leagues and I think that's quite actually quite momentous and, and not something to be passed over because obviously it is part of establishing the, the league's status as, as the number one. So that, I guess that's a couple of league perspectives to, to dig into there, Dan. No, I think it's fascinating. I mean, um, maybe we'll, we'll park also maybe the, 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 the link, uh, the, the SPL and um, Salah maybe point because I think mm-hmm. that sort of brings up a really interesting... Um, conundrum mixed obviously in with the the different windows and um, and the competitive advantage there because exactly as you said if we if we go back to a couple of years ago where the Premier League you know I think for its own purposes for its own integrity purposes integrity of competition purposes felt like they needed to close the window um, in order to ensure from the for the season starting but it obviously gave them quite a significant competitive disadvantage um, where you know, obviously almost every other European window was still open and, um, you know, caused potential issues. I almost think in the same way, I'm fascinated by, like, for example, over the last few years, especially the Turkish window is always open for at least a week after the EPL window. And that sometimes feels like it gives the the Turkish clubs a good competitive advantage for um, instances where, um, EPL teams, for example, have got bloated squads um, and they feel like they might be able to take advantage of a good deal um, from EPL into um, um, the, the Turkish league. And that, you can see that's happened with a few potential players this week um, um, that's been reported to uh, I think a few transfers into Galler, at least, or otherwise. Um, but I think the Salah one, for me, is a fascinating one, which mixed that, that sort of window timing with competitive advantage with whether actually, you know, how likely that type of deal was going to even happen. But, you know, the amount of on offer for, correct me if I'm wrong, Omar, a 31-year-old, I think now, um, in Salah was astronomical. But um, how that sort of plays into 
um, the problems and difficulties Liverpool might have, which is usually if a very large amount comes for um, a player that they think might be valued less than the the amount, as we've seen with Fabinho, as, as we've seen with sometimes other players, you know, and Coutinho, obviously, back in the day, um, you know, they, they do sell, but then reinvest very well. Um, now, I think, obviously, if Salah is still one of their best players, um, it becomes more tricky. But, you know, I remember listening to Carragher and Neville earlier in the week or the weekend saying that if if one of the Saudi clubs had bid £200 million for Salah, guaranteed, for example, um, you know, it would have put Liverpool in a pretty tricky situation. And I would have thought well over actually what his market value would be worth for a, for anyone that um, was anyone else that was potentially bidding. So, um I, I really like that um, approach that you've taken, which is sort of on a on a league and on the league basis. Um, but I know also the other side of things that you had, you had quite an interesting um, bit of analysis on um, multi-club groups or one in particular and how they have gone about with their potential spending too. Yeah, I think it's, it's interesting. Maybe we can get into some of the kind of age profile stuff here because I think that is really interesting and Actually, I might quickly touch on the, the Salah point. I know we'll, we'll probably get into it and, and who knows how that will play out, um, you know, not just this window, but maybe in, in subsequent windows. But Liverpool had the third oldest exits in uh, in the big five leagues. So the average age of the exits that they had, permanent exits, was was nearly 32. Um, I think only Palace and, uh, if I can get it up here, um, Palace and Osasuna had, uh, had old exits. Actually, Osasuna was only a couple of players. So... Um, Liverpool did well, and it's clearly a policy, you know, to get rid of some of the older players. They've seen their squad age. I think it was uh, it was really notable. I think when Liverpool won the Champions League, it was kind of a squad pretty much at, at peak age. But that was obviously you know four years ago now, and, and you're looking at 27 year olds who are now 31 year olds, and, and so on. So I think it wouldn't surprise me if Liverpool did choose to sell in the next 12 months, and if they can on, on Salah and get a good fee. Um, I'm always surprised in a way that they didn't accept the bid. But uh, um, yeah, uh, I think an interesting consideration. Uh, and on the on the flip side, so looking at young players, um, so uh, Strasbourg and, Ch- and Chelsea signings were pretty much the oldest, uh, pretty much the youngest in the big five leagues um, over the window. So, you know, it's a pretty clear strategy. I mean, I think sometimes you can look at clubs that spend a lot of money in windows and, and wonder exactly what they're doing, but but it was you know pretty pretty clear what the club was doing, not looking to sign older players and, and hoping that the value of those players grow over time. And I think there is there is good reason to believe that will be the case. Um, so we've essentially got a a win probability impact model, so we can see um, when we when a player comes into a team how much they increase or decrease a cha- team's chances of, of winning an individual game. And we can also project that for an individual player. So if you've got a player who's a certain level today and we're projecting him to improve over time, you can kind of look at how much more impact they're expected to have in the future. Uh, and for Strasbourg signing, we expect their, their signings win probability impacts increase by 10 percentage points and Chelsea's 8 percentage points over, over the next three years. So essentially, these players are going to become much more effective they're, they're good players today, but they're going to become much more effective at, at winning games in, in the next three years. And therefore, the club shouldn't expect necessarily an immediate return. But over three years, they should uh, expect some some pretty positive performance returns. And actually, in the whole of the big five leagues, only two clubs could match that. That was Real Madrid. Bellingham was obviously a big part of that. Is, is a player who's very good, and we expect him to improve. They also signed, um, I think, Fran Garcia. We, we expect to improve quite a bit over the coming years as well. Uh, and the other club was Lorient as well, and a French club who 
I guess, bucked the trend a little bit in, in terms of France, in terms of signing young players. And they've always done that. L'Oreal, they've always been a very good um, buying club. So, um, yeah, in many ways, I think our model suggests that um, Strasbourg and Chelsea have, um, have signed well. Uh, they've signed on a particular strategy. They've obviously spent a lot of money. I think that's the main talking point. But actually, we've got a a player price model, which which is slightly different to a player valuation model. So a player valuation model tries to assess how much a player kind of, almost like what his transfer marks value is, um, whereas a player price model tries to account for a few more factors, such as the circumstances of the buying club, circumstances of the player in terms of contract and that type of thing. And in terms of our price model, uh, actually Chelsea's average fee paid was about 9% less than what we would have expected based on the price of the player. And in particular, they seem to get good value on and Kunku and, and Jackson, um, they they probably overpaid on on Caicedo, but um, they they made it up on other signings. So, yeah, I think there's a lot, obviously, a lot of commentary around Chelsea, but but I think you know, obviously, results on the pitch haven't been great to start the season, but um, there is reason to believe that this strategy will work for them, and I think it is a very clear, deliberate strategy, and um, and in some respects, fair play to them for, for going after it, because I think other clubs have often thought about it and then not necessarily gone in. Um, fully, uh, fully committed to that strategy. No, it's fascinating. And going going back on a, a couple of things, I think the thing about um, the, the maybe three points just to note there that I was sort of writing down as you were speaking. The first was I found it in, interesting how you're saying about Liverpool effectively uh, re- releasing um, the second or third oldest average um, age of players. Um, I wonder whether that is a good thing or a bad thing in that they didn't tie them down to longer contracts so couldn't get transfer fees or they didn't want to tie them down to longer transfers in order to increase the liabilities that they may have had and therefore putting them, sending them on free uh, as free agents is actually a, a better, somewhat more attractive proposition than maybe had been in the past. And... The reason why I say all of that is um, because obviously one of the trends that we've seen, especially maybe with Chelsea, but obviously others as well, are these longer contracts. So um, I'd I'd be fascinated in uh, maybe just uh, pitching the idea to you in a a minute, Omar, as to any ideas or thoughts that you have on um, sort of longer contracts generally or the types of things that you've seen um, for some from sort of my perspective, um, I find it fascinating, obviously, the reports, especially Chelsea, where, um, you know, a lot of these players over the last maybe two windows since the new owners have come in have sort of been put on six, seven, even eight year um, contracts. And we've seen and what's been reported around sort of FFP amortization um, and cost control. But also, I think, um, you know, I find it fascinating you know this idea that the longer the contracts you're going to be on the more types of issues you might have around inflation (laughs) in truth and actually how valuable that contract might be or might not be if um, RPI indexes are or aren't taken into account and and obviously there's other stuff around that which is well you know and I'm sure you've seen it as well Omar around um, what 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 sort of happens if the player does really really well um is on an incentive-based contract 
but then inside 18 months of a seven-year deal wants to renegotiate because the, the highest ceiling isn't as high as some of the other highest ceilings might necessarily be. And therefore, if the benefit of longer contracts is longer security for the player, um, whether that feeds into the idea that they the club or other clubs can't say, well, we're just not renegotiating this deal because it's a long-term deal that you're going to stay on and whether that breeds some type of insecurity or, um, you know, other types of issues that might, might arise. So, you know, I, I definitely see and understand you know, the rationale that UEFA have tried to obviously re- reduce or remove in terms of longer contracts mean longer to amortise the, the transfer fee, etc., but, you know, have you seen or read or had any, you know, ideas or thoughts on, you know, what seems to be a little bit of a trend towards these longer contracts for, again, younger players um, as they're sort of developing in the, in the, in the public eye? Yeah, I think the, the really fascinating point is that one that you made around, you know, what happens a year, 18 months into a, a deal, like to what extent um, are contracts, um, you know, are other players kind of demanding uh, pay rise and I suppose I mean you, you'll know this from your experiences I mean most or a lot of contracts for young players will have triggers around you know after a certain number of appearances um, salary increases and, and so on um, but I suspect that's probably more for academy developed players or, or very young players coming through not your kind of 21 22 23 year olds who are being signed for the first team so yeah I um, it, as you said it's a bit of a double-edged sword I think you mentioned right at the start as well, the older, the longer contracts with the older players, and I think that's quite an interesting one. Um, I, I think the, there's some great stats that um, our team have pulled together around the, the the proportion of the world's best 150 players increasingly being players who are aged over 28, 29, 30. So it's clear that there is, um, you know, uh, the average age, as it were, of top players is, is being able to be pushed into the 30s and the players can sustain performances for longer. I think if I'm a club and I've got a really good 29-year-old, uh, I'd have more confidence today than I might have done five or ten years ago that they'll be able to sustain that performance going into the future. I think the risk comes when you're signing a player like that. And the, the obvious example is, is Harry Kane going to buy Munich. How, how long should they offer a, a contract to him? And I think... There's always so much uncertainty when you go into a new environment, how you're going to perform. Um, I think Kane is obviously, you can do all the assessment around his his lifestyle, his professionalism and so on, which helps. But the example I always keep coming back to in my mind is someone like Alexis Sanchez, who you would have thought would have been able to sustain his performance you know, deep into his career, but just kind of fell away completely when he, when he left Arsenal. Um, so, yeah. Not, I don't envy clubs. I do think there's some value to be made in, in signing older players as well, just because the market's going so young. There was a good interview with Arsene Wenger today in, in the Independent, which spoke about the, the kind of the amount of clubs going after young players. So, yeah, I, I'm not sure. The one thing I would say is I'm not sure clubs think about these market dynamics. I think they think about their own contracts, that sort of thing. I'm not sure they think about the market dynamics um, and where value is being created or, or value is being left on the table as much as they could do. Um, from from window to window, I think maybe only a handful of really smart clubs do that. Um, I just wanted to ask you as well. I mean, you've been involved in a number of deals throughout the window, and I know you've uh, you've been dealing uh, a lot with with kind of agents that are either looking to move players on or or renegotiate and so on through the window. Are there any particular observations that you've had from your experiences in this window compared to other windows? Perhaps as well with a thought in mind as to some of the regulations that may or may not be coming in the future. Well, I think. 
you know, it, it's easy to say um, as a trend, well, agents were trying to move more players on this summer because the commission cap's coming in. So this is the last window that they can maximize what the, the, the commission that they might be able to achieve. And post-October and this, the winter window, the, their commission is going to be capped at 3% and 3%. So, you know, they're more incentivized to try and get deals over the line. But, you know, the truth is, is that I, I think agents are always incentivized to try and get deals over the line um, if the player wants to move or if the club wants to to, to sell those players. So, you know, I think ultimately I found it a really busy window, especially at different times. There seems to be a, a lot going on. I think one of the things that I saw, if I was just trying to, you know, look at it in terms of a more macro picture, um, and it was in part actually, I guess, because of a good article I wrote, I read in the um, Athletic that Ollie Kay um, wrote, I think the week before last was, and it's to your point, really. I mean, the interesting thread that I think that there you you have in your summer window observation piece is um, that sort of emphasis around younger player purchases. Um, that seems to be one of the trends itself. And obviously, we worked on a number of deals for you know players of all ages. But when I was thinking about this just in prep for um, our chat now, you know. It just struck me, for example, that that Palmer deal from City to Chelsea, and then even the Chelsea sales: Gilmore, Hudson Odoi, Mount, Abraham, Hall, for example. All of those players being relatively young, um, and the amounts that they were um, going for being relatively high. Um, I guess Mount being the exception in a degree, to a degree, but even that was a, a large number. And I, I was just wondering on your views on. On that, obviously, the, the trends and the, the the insights that you were making make specific reference, obviously, to at least to some degree, the bigger clubs, you know, spending large amounts on younger players. But I, I thought one of the other trends, in a way, and that might be to do with cost control compliance (FFP), was the the amount of homegrown sales. Maybe that's just skewed in a bit in my mind because of Chelsea or even City's sale as well. Um, but obviously that being um, a huge accounting benefit really because academy prospects are sort of pure profit from a, um, a transfer uh, receipts perspective. But I just wondered whether, you know, you saw anything from, from and maybe not wanting to put you on the spot too much on that sort of homegrown sale point and, you know, the, the, the prices effectively that, you know, I guess quite a lot of variation, but that, that Palmer price seemed, you know, to come out of nowhere in effect. Obviously, he's an outstanding player being able to get anywhere near this, that City team at such a young age, but it just sort of struck a chord in that last week of the window. Yeah, I forget. I, we have quantified the impact of homegrown, um, yeah, just homegrown players before. I forget what the number is. It's probably somewhere in the region of ten to twenty percent. So it's it's not insignificant, but it's also not um, a, a mind blowing amount. Uh, I think um, it is it is a factor that's actually completely overlooked um, in analysis of windows. The fact that you know the way that clubs have to manage, they if they're playing in Europe, they have to have you know four. Uh, as in club trained players for association trained players or, or more uh, and there's a maximum of 17 overseas players so you know you often get these demands we need to sign xyz but it's not that easy and and you know even a club like man united having to navigate you know exits of, of players like uh, maguire and uh, potentially like mctominay and alanga and so on who are who are either homegrown or association trained players it's, it's not an easy thing to to get right and it's often overlooked 
Um, in terms of the young players, I'm just looking at some of the numbers again of, of transfers involving big five league clubs. Uh, about uh, about half of all deals, uh, or maybe actually, no, let me recalculate that. About half of all deals were players 23 or younger. Um, and the in terms of the total volume, if I do the maths here very quickly, uh, excuse me, this doesn't make for good listening. Uh, again, about yeah, about half of the half the volume of um, a bit more than half of the volume of of value in the in the transfer window was on twenty players twenty three or younger. So I think that will continue to be the case. Players, uh, clubs going after young players. Um, uh, we saw we did some analysis that looked at growth in transfer fees for young players versus older players and it continues to be young players so i, I do think there's some value as i said on on the other side of the market with older players but you just have to work out what what kind of contractual um, approach you'll take um the one thing i did want to touch on actually was was the championship which i'm um, endlessly fascinated by um as a as a division and the, and the different strategies that these clubs are taking in order to try and in some cases gamble their way up to the Premier League, uh, and the most interesting club I think is uh, is Sunderland. So, if you take the average age of signings across the Big Five or across the Championship, it's generally around 25, 26 years old. Sunderland's was under twenty one; it was twenty point eight years old. Um, they've signed, uh, I think, nine. What we categorise as kind of nine first team signings, but players with big upside. Um, so we're expecting them to have a, a pretty big impact in the region of kind of ten to fifteen percent um, improvement over the next three years um, on those players. Uh, and interestingly, other clubs like Plymouth, Bristol City, Coventry, so clubs who haven't been in the top flight for quite a while um, or, or ever, indeed, um, generally buying young and looking to build over the long term. And then you compare that to the clubs that signed the oldest average players, Norwich, 30 years old, Cardiff, 29.3 years old, Watford, 29 years old, um, QPR, uh, 28.1 years old, um, all, all kind of signing older players, uh, and it's interesting. I guess the, the the narratives and the circumstances around some of these clubs. You know, some of the clubs that I listed there at the end, I guess, have higher expectations as to where they'll be next season or in future seasons. Even a club like QPR, I know they struggled last year, but um, you know, there, there is, and they've, they've um, you know, they're, they're probably up against it budget wise, but they need to. You know, there's an expectation I think from fans to be pushing back towards the top half, whereas the Sunderland, the Plymouth. Even a Coventry did so well last year. There is an acceptance, probably, of fans' of the ability to to build over time. So, yeah, I, I think uh, I think I'm right in saying the Championship had almost like the biggest range in terms of ages of, of players bought, um, and that um, I think is reflective of, of the different expectations of clubs, and in, in a way that perhaps doesn't exist in the same way um, in, in some of the big five leagues. And just maybe to finish, because I think actually that your your points um, in going back on the homegrown. Um, uh, point is is incredibly valid um only because i was again reading something today around how hugo Lloris, who obviously is probably one of the most decorated goalkeepers um over the last decade or so um is unlikely it's reported to be registered by spurs in their epl um squad um which I found quite remarkable in truth but in part it's because he's non homegrown and uh, Postacoglu, a 
um, is reported at least to not want to almost, it sounds harsh, but waste a, a third goalkeeping place on a non-homegrown player, bearing in mind the, the lists and the numbers are so tight. So maybe that might be another interesting one for another day. But I do see more regularly sort of reference being made to, you know, especially EPL teams losing um, uh, club, specifically club trained or and or um, national um, league trained players um, and that obviously coming at a premium in order to fill those play- places otherwise that squad ultimately gets reduced so maybe that's uh, another one for another day too yeah uh, yeah I mean we've got we've got a view on squad size as well I think um, in our view generally uh, clubs don't need to fill the 25 spaces um, it, almost irrespective of, of what league you're in um, but but they often feel I mean depending on the manager they often feel it compelled to. There are certain managers who actually are very good at keeping smaller squads, which is worth consideration, particularly when you're when you're recruiting coaches. But yeah, I think um, a lot of clubs feel they need to fill the 25 and therefore, yeah, if you are trying to do that, then you, you really need to manage it well because otherwise you're uh, potentially losing places if you, if you, um, you know, if you don't have the requisite number of, of uh, club trained or, or association trained players. So yeah, certainly another, another topic to get into another time. No, great. And then I think if I just very briefly, just for a few seconds, talk about um, um, you know some of the figures from the, the window. It, it looked like Chelsea came out top, at least in terms of total spend, with just under four hundred million. And then on the flip side, we have Luton spending uh, just twenty million. Um, in truth, so just that variation is totally crazy. Obviously, Chelsea's net spend was a lot less because of their sales, but just that variation, and then the obvious gap in what must be performance levels mean that, um, you know, um, that those financial implications and the financial capacity of different clubs in the same league means a huge range of um, difference, I guess. Yeah, absolutely. Um, yeah, interesting. I think the last one on, on the Premier League trends is that most have gone fairly young, but Luton a little bit older, Everton and Fulham a little bit older, the only clubs over 26 and a half years old so yeah uh, I think particularly in the case of Luton and Everton probably shorter term contracts lower lower values just trying to see where they get to next year but but clubs like Chelsea Newcastle um, Spurs to a degree Sheffield United as well buying younger and hoping to to build for the long term Great to chat as always pal and um, yeah I hope you have a nice uh, international break and um, yeah looking forward to catching up again next week Nice one Cheers Dan Take care Thanks for listening you can follow me on Twitter, TikTok and Instagram at Football Law, read my blogs and listen to my previous podcasts via my website, danielg.com forward slash blogs. Please do subscribe to the Dundee Football Podcast, like, share and tag me. If you like the content, if not my voice, you'll probably also like my book Dundee, an insider's guide to football contracts, multi-million pound transfers and Premier League big business a bit of a mouthful. It's available to buy in hard copy, digitally and via Audible. All links are in the podcast show notes. Lastly, the podcast is powered by 13, which is a fashion brand I've started. All proceeds go towards cancer charity research and particularly the stellar work done by John Krell, who has helped my mum through some difficult times over the last few years. You can take a look at the merch and hopefully buy a t-shirt, hoodie, cap, or all three. Please do spread the word and go to 13shop.co.uk. That's 13shop, 
www.ghostsofthecoast.co.uk. Thanks for listening.